أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم صلى الله وسلم عليك يا سيدي ويا مولاي يا رسول الله صلى الله وسلم عليك يا سيدي ويا مولاي يا أبا عبد الله يا غريب يا مظلوم كربلاء يا ليتنا كنا معكم سادتي فنفوز فوزا عظيما قال الله تعالى في محكم كتابه الكريم أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والذين يقولون ربنا هب لنا من أزواجنا وذرياتنا قرة عين ربنا هب لنا من أزواجنا وذرياتنا قرة عين واجعلنا للمتقين إماما Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states in the Holy Quran, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. And those who say, Our Lord, grant us comfort in our spouses and our progeny, and make us imams for the reverent Amanna billah, sadaqallahu al-aliyu al-azim. Let us begin by enlivening our hearts and minds in our gathering with the salutations upon the Holy Prophet and his purified progeny. Sallu ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammad. Parents and prospective parents, those who are looking to be parents in the future, they share a common concern and that is regarding raising good children and a good progeny. The Quran tells us that the believers, they make a prayer to God. They say, رَبَّنَا هَبْ لَنَا مِنْ أَزْوَاجِنَا وَذُرِّيَّاتِنَا قُرَّةَ أَعْيُنَ They say, our Lord, make for us in our spouses and our progeny a comfort for us. It's something that all parents are concerned about. How do we raise moral children? How do we raise a progeny that will not just be a comfort to ourselves, but that will represent their faith and goodness and virtue in the best manner? And we find that raising a good progeny is not an automatic process. It doesn't happen by itself. It requires enormous effort on part of the parents and on part of sometimes the extended family and on part of society. And it continues. It's a long journey that continues long beyond 
the childhood years. If we want good children, a good progeny, we have to put a lot of effort, a lot of time in this. And so it's important that we understand the importance of ensuring the rights of our children. Oftentimes, we speak about the responsibilities of children towards their parents, the parents' rights over the children. And this is important. But tonight, I'd like to flip the situation around. And I want to talk about the responsibilities of parents towards their children and the rights of children upon their parents. And we want to focus on three items, three issues, three areas of attention when it comes to ensuring the rights of our children. Ensuring the rights of our children and thinking about raising a progeny begins well be before the child is actually born. It even begins when at the process of marriage and seeking a potential spouse, oftentimes when we think about marriage, we think about marriage in individualistic terms. I want to find a spouse that's going to make me happy, that's going to fulfill my emotional needs, my spiritual needs, my physical needs, my intellectual needs, and that's good. We want a spouse, a companion, who will take care of us and we take care of them. But it's also important, it, it is as important, if not more important, to look for in a potential spouse someone who is suitable to be a parent, who is suitable to help you in the journey of raising children, raising a progeny that you can be proud of. It's not just about me and you as spouses but it's about future generations. It's about our progeny. And so it's important to understand that ensuring the rights of children is an early process. It begins even before the child is born. It begins even when it comes to the selection of a spouse. But even after that, after you're married, even when it comes to procreation, this is why we find in our books of hadith, that there are hadiths about the etiquette of procreation. Some people might find this strange. Etiquette to procreation? Yes. That there is an etiquette to procreation. Because procreation is not just a physical activity. In Islam, procreation is considered to be, in addition to a physical activity, it's a spiritual activity. Because your intention is to bring a child into this world. And because this child is an amana, is a trust from God, so even when you go about the act of procreation itself, there's a certain etiquette. That's why we're recommended that we perform this act in a state of ritual purity. It's symbolic, but this prepares our minds and our hearts in order to procreate. And there are many other etiquettes. So it's important for us to think about what are the ways that we can prepare ourselves, not just after we've actually become parents, but even before then, even when we're thinking about marriage, even when we're thinking about bearing children, what are some of the things that we can do in order to prepare 
for this very important task, this very important trust. Tonight, I want to focus on three items, three areas in ensuring the rights of our children. Number one is when it comes to the material and physical needs of our children, ensuring their food, their clothing, their shelter. Now, most parents, they take this for granted. They say, of course, of course, it's my responsibility to feed my child, to clothe them, to shelter them. But what is important here, and I want to make note of this, is that ensuring the material and the physical needs of children is a right. It's a right that the child has upon the parents. It's not a favor. Some parents, they might think that they're doing their child a favor by clothing them, by buying them their physical needs. It's not a favor that you're doing your child. It's an obligation. God has commanded us as parents that we take care of the material needs of our children. The Prophet, peace be upon him and his family, he says, Everyone is responsible for their dependence. We have responsibility. God holds us accountable. In another verse, in another hadith, the Prophet says, The one who spends extra effort, extra time, extra resources in ensuring the material needs of their child, he or she, in the eyes of God, it is as though they are fighting for the sake of God. They are like a mujahid. If they do it with the correct intention, they do it qurbatan ilallahi ta'ala. It's something that has to be done, but if you frame it as an act of devotion, then you are rewarded for this act. And it's a responsibility upon us as parents. During the time of the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. Allahumma salli alayhi There was a wealthy man who passed away. And the Muslims, they participated in his burial. After that, after he was buried, his children, they came to the Prophet. They told him, Ya Rasulullah, we're not doing well financially. The Prophet told them, you're not? Your father was wealthy. Did he not leave anything behind for you? They said, no. Said, our father gave away everything before he died. Gave away everything. And he left nothing for us. The Prophet, peace be upon him, his disappointment appeared on his face. He was very disappointed to hear this. And he told them, and listen to this. He told them, he said, had I known about this before we buried him, I would not have allowed him to be buried alongside the Muslims. How can you disregard the needs of your progeny, the needs of your dependents? Yes, it's good for you to give, to help others, but not at the expense of those who are you, you are also responsible for. We are responsible to take care of our children, of our progeny, of our families. We have to take care of them. This is a responsibility by God. We can't ignore this responsibility. So we are expected to take care of the material needs of our children. However, this doesn't mean that our children take advantage of us as parents. Sometimes some children might hear this and they say, oh, Alhamdulillah, 
now I'm going to get my long list of things that I want and I give it to my parents and this means they have to buy me anything I ask them. No, 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 no. Of course not. Some of our kids are enjoying their time tonight. Of course not. It doesn't mean that we take advantage. Un unfortunately, sometimes what ends up happening is some children, they take advantage of their parents. They take advantage of the responsibility that their parents have. And they continue to nag. And they deal with their parents as though their parents are their servants and their slaves. And there are certain societal expectations. You watch TV, you're bombarded with advertisements. Buy this, buy that, buy this, buy that. And the kid comes up to the parents and says, Dad, Mom, I saw this toy on TV. I saw this clothing. There's these particular shoes. There's this device. There's this game. There's this thing. Buy it for me. Buy it for me. And they begin to nag, and they force their parents to buy them and buy them and buy them. It's important that we do not take advantage of our parents just because they are responsible for our well-being. That doesn't mean that we take advantage of them. Because what ends up happening sometimes is that parents, they become like servants and slaves to their kids. I remember once reading a story about a father who put his five-year-old child, his five-year-old son to bed. He put him to bed. After five minutes, he heard his son call out, Dad! He told him what? He said, I'm thirsty. Parents know that, mashallah, at the time of bedtime, the child gets thirsty, the child gets hungry, the child remembers that their stomach hurts. They remember all of their problems at bedtime, huh? They, don't f they forget about everything. At bedtime, they remember all of their problems. So, Dad, I'm thirsty. Can you get me a glass of water? The father called back, no, go to sleep. You could have drank water when you were awake before bedtime. Go to sleep. Five minutes later, again, the child calls out, Dad. Told him what? I'm thirsty. Can you bring me a glass of water? The father told him, no, go to sleep. If you call out again, I'll come and spank you. Don't spank your children, please. After five minutes, the kid once again called out. He said, Dad, when you come to spank me, can you bring me a glass of water, please? Sometimes the kids, they take advantage of their parents. The parents, they keep allowing their children to ask and they give them everything they ask for to the point where we spoil our children. We spoil them. And spoiling our children is the worst thing that we can do, not just for them, but for us. It's devastating. Spoiling destroys the character of a person because they begin to take everything for granted. They begin to think of themselves in privileged terms. See, sometimes some people, the way that they talk, the way that they carry themselves is very privileged, huh? They expect that the whole world comes to their service, that they're always fed with a golden spoon, that they're always given everything, that all attention has to be given to them. And this destroys your character because the reality of life is that not everyone is going to be at your service. The reality of life is that you're going to face many challenges. There's going to be setbacks. There's going to be failures. There's going to be 
other issues that you deal with. So the worst thing that we can do is to spoil our children because we set them and we set us, ourselves up for failure. But it's important, brothers and sisters, to educate our children in a correct manner. Many parents, they wish that their children become rich, especially immigrant parents, right? Many immigrant parents, they've come from overseas and they remember their difficulties back home and why they may have fled their homes and come to different parts of the world so that they can live a more comfortable life, huh? So they want their children to live in comfort. So they push them, they tell them, hey, go and be a physician, go be a doctor, go be a lawyer, go be a mechanic. Not, not a mechanic, a mechanical engineer. Even though mechanics, I think, do well as well, I think. You know, every time I take my car to the shop, I have to give an arm and a leg, right? We push them, we tell them, go and be rich. Get a job that's going to make you wealthy. We want our children to be rich. Now, it's good that we want our children to, be, to live in comfort, but we shouldn't educate our children to be rich and to be wealthy. That should not be their goal. We should educate our children to be content, to understand the value of things. Right now, if you ask many children about the price of objects, they can tell you the price of a new iPhone. They tell you the price of a car. They tell you the price of you know, Air Force Ones. They tell you the price of different types of apparel. Anything you ask them, immediately they know the price. What's more important is not knowing the price of something, but the value of something. The value of something. We have to teach our children to understand the value. Why is it that we acquire material gains? What is the purpose? They are not the ends. They are means to something else. So we have to take care of our children's physical and their material needs. And part of this is taking care of their physical health. When it comes to the food that we give our children, I know that it's really tough. Most parents, they work all day. There was a time where families, they could have one breadwinner. One person takes care of the whole family. The other one could stay home, take care of kids, take care of other issues. Nowadays, it's become more and more difficult to maintain that kind of financial life. Nowadays, in most cases, both parents have to work and we work for long hours. And what does that mean? That means that we oftentimes don't have much time for anything else when it comes to feeding our kids. What do we do? We look for shortcuts. We take them, get fast food, right? We're on a rush. We need to get home. We need to get back to work, right? So fast food is a go-to and fast food is all over the place. Or when it comes to processed foods, we go to the supermarket and we buy processed foods or frozen food items so that we can quickly fix their food, right? In some cases, the food that we give our children is detrimental to their health. It's not good for their health. Fast food and processed food. I told the youth this a few nights ago. I'm not against fast food. I love fast food. Everyone loves fast food. Everyone loves greasy food. It's okay from time to time. But don't make it a habit to always consume this kind of food because it's very bad for your health. It's bad for your physical health. So we have to ensure that our kids, when we're feeding them, the food that we are feeding them is halal and tayyib. 
Not only is it permissible, it's halal. That's a given. That's a given. Of course, we're not supposed to give our children haram food. That's a given. We don't even need to talk about this. But in addition to that, what's important is that the food that we give our children is also healthy. We have to make the time. We have to make the time. Because this is an amana. It's a trust by God. If our children are not doing well, if they are physically ill, that we take care of them. Of course, most parents, they understand this obligation. Most parents care. But this is a reminder that these are rights that the children have over us as parents, and we have to ensure these rights. When it comes to physical activities, I remember when I was growing up as a child, we would be outside all day long, playing sports, jumping around, playing tag, physical activity all day long, running around. You may remember some of you growing up in your childhood, right? Running around all the time in the neighborhood, playing with friends. Our parents would have to come and force us, drag us inside. Nowadays, parents, they have to drag their children outside. We're always sitting down, iPad in our face. And day by day, the first day you get your iPad, it starts off over here. Second day here, third day here, fifth day here, tenth day, it's like this. And then, and then, after a while, you're doing sujood. You're doing sujood to the iPad. And it's video games. And it's TV. You know, when I was a kid, we used to actually play sports and we used to actually play video games. Even when we played video games like the Atari, even when we would play those video games, we would actually play video games. Kids nowadays, they don't play video games. They watch other kids play video games. They don't play with toys. They watch other kids play with toys, unbox them, you know, show them this toy, play with it. The kids are watching others play. There's no physical activity. You know what this does to our bodies? It destroys our bodies. We know this. If you don't move around, if you don't engage in physical activity, it's destructive for our physical health. So it's important for us. I'm not saying don't buy your kids video games or iPads or anything like that. No, you can't. We live in, in a society now where this is inevitable. It's unavoidable. Unavoidable. But what is important for us as parents is to control is to control and to facilitate physical activities. You don't just tell your kid, hey, turn off your video games and go play on your bike. But to facilitate those activities, to facilitate those sports, to spend time, maybe you need to play those sports with your child. You don't just command them to go because they're not gonna do it by themselves. Maintaining the physical and the material well-being of our children is a responsibility upon parents. This is the first area, the physical and the material rights of our children. The second area, the second type of rights is the emotional rights, maintaining the emotional rights and needs of our children. All humans need emotional care, but especially children. We all need companionship. We all need someone to take care of our emotional needs. But especially when it comes to children, this need is much greater. Adults, you grow up, 
you get busy with other stuff. You can busy yourself with other stuff. But children especially, they require companionship. They require emotional care. In fact, the experts that they tell us that without a comforting touch, the child is not able to survive. I gave this example earlier today in the Nenawa conference. That if you go back and you look at the establishment of orphanages after the major world wars, World War I, World War II in Europe, there were many orphanages that were established. Many children were left without parents. Their parents died. Some of them fled. Some of them left. Some of them even left their newborns, their infants. They left them and they were placed in orphanages. Now, what's interesting is that many of these children, these young children, they would not make it. They would not survive. They would die in these orphanages. Why? Why? Not because the place was was filthy or that they did not feed them. No, the place was clean, it was sterile. They would feed the children. But because they were short-staffed, they were not able to give each child the emotional needs, emotional attention that this child needed. The child needs to be touched, physically touched. Experts say that a child, a small child, needs physical, the physical warmth of, a, uh, of, of the touch. And so because these nurses could not carry the child, many of them would perish, many of them would die. We need emotional attention. We need emotional care. When we find various children, since we brought up the issue of orphanages, there is a special attention paid to taking care of the emotional needs of orphans in Islam. So much attention that we do not disregard or ignore orphans. Don't ignore the plight of orphans. There are many children around the world who don't have their parents with them. The Ahlul Bayt teach us the importance of caring for orphans, even something as small as rubbing your hand on the head of an orphan. The hadith says that every hair that passes by under your hand, that God gives enormous rewards. Why? Because this is an act of kindness. This child has lost his or her parents. They have this emotional need that needs to be met and you're expressing kindness to them. You're expressing compassion. You're giving them attention. We take the example of Amir al-Mu'mineen. Amir al-Mu'mineen was the father of the orphans. He was the father of the orphans. He spent most of his time caring for the orphans, giving them attention. We know that one day when Imam was the Khalifa, he was in Kufa. The Imam is walking in the streets in the market of Kufa and he sees a woman carrying a load of food and other items. And she's alone and she's carrying this heavy load. So he approaches her and he greets her. She replies to his greeting. She doesn't recognize who he is. He asks her, he says, oh woman, I saw that you are alone. You're carrying this heavy load. 
can I help you? Can I assist you? Let me carry your load for you. She said, okay, thank you. May Allah bless you. She gave him the load. So he followed her as they were going back to her home. He asked her, he said, why is it that you're out alone? There's no one to help you. There's no one to assist you in your shopping. She told him, my husband was killed fighting alongside on the side of Ali ibn Abi Talib in one of the battles. And so I'm left alone with my orphans, with my children. There's no one to help me. Imam, Imam Ali when he heard this, he was heartbroken. Heartbroken. This woman doesn't have someone to assist her. Her husband gave his life in the way of Allah as a shaheed and there is no one to take care of her and her children. So that night, Amir al-Mu'mineen, he goes back home. And that night, he can't sleep all night. Early in the morning, he gets up. He goes out into the market. He buys some supplies. He goes to the home of the woman. He knocks on the door. She opens the door. She tells him, what are you doing here? He says, I've brought you some supplies. She thanks him. He says, please, allow me to come in. Let me help you. If there's anything that I can help you with, just tell me. She says, you know what? Yes, you can help me. I'm preparing some things in the home. I'm preparing some food and other items. My kids are still hungry. They haven't eaten. So please come in and you can take care of the kids for a moment. Watch my kids while I take care of other things in the home. He says yes. He takes the children, two children. He seats each one on one side of his lap. He takes the food in his hand and bite by bite he feeds each child. And with every bite that he gives them, he tells the child, my dear child, forgive Ali ibn Abi Talib for taking your father away from you. The tradition says that after a while, a woman, she came, she knocked on the door the woman of the house, she opened the door. It was her friend. She came to visit her. She entered into the home. She looked to the side. She saw Amir al-Mu'mineen. She recognized him. What's Amir al-Mu'mineen doing in the home of this woman? The children are sitting on his lap. She, so she took the woman aside and she asked her. She said, what's going on here? Said The woman began to explain. She said, this man came to assist me. May Allah bless him. So I allowed him to help me. She asked her, she said, do you recognize who this is? She said, no, it's just a, a nice person, a righteous man. She told him, this is Ali ibn Abi Talib. The woman was shocked. She felt so ashamed. She came running. She said, my master, Amir al-Mu'mineen, please forgive me. I didn't recognize you. I didn't know who you were. Had I known, I would not have troubled you in this way. I would not have expected you to do this. Amir al-Mu'mineen, he tells her, no, in fact, I want you to forgive me. I want you to forgive me. It's my responsibility to take care of these orphans, these children. This was Amir al-Mu'mineen. He was the father of the orphans. If we are able to, and there are many orphans, we know this around the world, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in Iran, in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Yemen, all across the world, there are orphans who are in need. If we are able to, let's help them out. 
Let's help them out. Doesn't have to be large amounts of money. Whatever you're capable of supporting, do so on a monthly basis. Make it recurrent in your life that you support the orphans. How much money do we spend on coffee in a month? You go to Tim Hortons, or if you're really lucky, to Starbucks, right? And how much money do we spend a month? $50, $100, $200 on coffee? Can we spend $50 to help orphans? Sometimes that amount, $50, takes care of many weeks of the provisions of an orphan. We can all do that. We're all capable to help the orphans. This is what I was referring to when I said al-baqiyatu salihat, those good things that outlive us. That after we're gone, they outlive us and they continue to produce rewards for us and a good legacy for us. Coming back to our children. The Prophet, peace be upon him, teaches us how to deal with children. Look at the Prophet. He was enveloped in mercy and compassion. The Quran says, That the Prophet was sent as a mercy to humankind. And this was not just a title that the Prophet was given. But in fact, in his life, in his daily life, he exhibited mercy and compassion. Look how he used to deal with children. The narrations, they tell us that the Prophet was very playful, that he would go out sometimes in the streets of Medina as he's walking. He would see a group of children playing and he would start to play with them. He would start to chase them. He would joke with them. The children, they loved the Prophet so much, so much, that the hadith say that when the Prophet would go out onto a travel, he would leave the city of Medina and as he's returning, at that time the caravans, they would have messengers. These messengers, they would go forward, right? They would go ahead and they would announce the arrival of the caravan. That's how people knew that the caravan was coming. That when the messenger of the caravan would come to the city of Medina and announce and say, Rasulullah is coming back to the city of Medina, the children, what would they do? They would race with one another outside to see who of them can reach the Prophet first. And the Prophet, he would gather them and he would carry as many children as he could. He would put them on his shoulders. Some of them would climb on the Prophet's back. He would carry as many children as he could. And then those who he could not carry anymore, he would tell his companions to carry. The children, they loved Rasulullah because Rasulullah was merciful with them. He was kind with them. He never broke their hearts. He never broke their feelings. Even an infant child, in one report, we are told that parents with a newborn child, a newborn infant, they went to Prophet, peace be upon him, and his family in order that the Prophet may bless the child. You know, you have a new infant. It's recommended to recite Adhan and Iqama. So they went to the Prophet and they told him, Ya Rasulullah, this is our newborn infant. We've brought him forth. Bless him with a prayer. The Prophet carries the newborn infant. The tradition says that as the Prophet was carrying the infant, the infant urinated. At that time, they didn't have pampers or other types of diapers, right? If the child urinates, it's probably going to spread. And so it got on the clothing of the Prophet. 
The father was so ashamed, quickly he snatched the child from the hands of the Prophet. He was embarrassed. And he began to apologize. He said, Ya Rasulullah, I'm so sorry, I'm embarrassed. The Prophet told him, hold on, hold on. He told him, this clothing, it can be washed, it can be cleaned. But if you deal like this with the child and you break their heart, who is going to mend the child of the heart? Who is going to mend the heart of the child? An, an infant, a newborn infant. This was the mercy of Rasulullah. Look at how the Prophet used to deal with Hassan and Hussein. Allahu Akbar. The kindness, the compassion, the care. The attention that he would give Imam Hassan and Imam Hussein. We all know the stories. Oftentimes he would seat them on his lap. He would embrace them. He would kiss them. He would allow them to climb onto him. The Prophet, the Hadith says that the Prophet, peace be upon him, sometimes he would get on all four. And Imam Hassan and Imam Hussein, they would ride on his back. And the Prophet would walk around. And they would enjoy and he would say, what beautiful riders and what beautiful animal, animal that they're riding on. The Prophet would joke with his children like this. He would allow them. Haven't we heard the hadith that in the middle of prayer, the Muslims are all praying with the Prophet in jama'ah. And the Prophet delays his sujood. And some of them, they lift their head. Why is the Prophet delaying his sujood? What's going on? Is he receiving revelation? they see that Imam Hussein is climbed on the back of Rasulullah. The Prophet doesn't want to get up. He wants to give him his time. This is how he would give attention to even children. He would take care of children. We have to be able to take care of the emotional needs of our children, dear friends, dear brothers and sisters. Don't neglect your children. If you neglect your children, they'll go to someone else, I promise you. They'll go to someone else. We don't want to engage in what is known as passive parenting. You're just called mom and you're called dad, but you're not involved in your child's life. Parent, parenting is not just a title that we acquire. It's not just an honor for me to be called papa or mama. It means something. It means that I'm involved in my child's life. Many children today, they grow up as modern day orphans. They have physical parents, fathers and mothers, but their parents are not involved in their lives. And so they're modern day orphans. It's as though they're orphans. We have to make time and we have to make quality time for our children. I know, again, we're all busy. We all have issues. We all have concerns, we all have work, but it is incumbent upon us to make time and spend time with our children. We have to do so. We have no choice. We have to make sure that we listen to our children, not hear our children, listen to our children. There's a difference. Sometimes your child speaks and you hear them, but you're not listening. We need to listen to hear their concerns. The problems and the challenges that our children face today are enormous, dear friends. And they're very, very different than the problems and challenges that we used to face when we were growing up. 
Our challenges were different challenges. The challenges that our children face today are immeasurable. They're devastating. And if we don't pay attention to our children, if we don't listen to them, if we don't hear their concerns, if we don't share with them their concerns, then we are setting them up for the biggest failure of their lives. I read a story once about a teacher who used to teach first grade. And on the first day of class, she gave her students an assignment. She said, I want you all to take a piece of paper and I want you to write down for me what you want to be when you grow up. You know, oftentimes we ask children, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? So she said, I passed around papers to all of the students. I said, write down for me what you want to be when you grow up. And then I'll look at them at home and I'll come back tomorrow and we'll talk about it. She says, I took all of the papers home and that evening I was reading through the answers. And she got a lot of typical answers. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a nurse. I want to be a firefighter. I want to be Spider-Man. I want to be, you know. But then one of the papers caught her attention. The child had written, I want to be a TV. TV? But the child explains, because the TV in our house is the center of attention. Because when we come home, the family comes home, everyone gathers around the TV. Because when the TV is on, everyone is quiet. Because my siblings, they fight over the remote to see who controls the TV. We have to spend time. Don't ignore our children. If we ignore them, I promise you, they will go to others. And you don't know who they go to. That's the problem. If we need attention and we are not given that attention, then we will find it anywhere that it's given to us. This is human nature. This is human nature in all of our relationships. Take this as a principle. We need attention. If we're not given the attention from the place that it matters, then we will go to other places and get the attention from other places. We have to care for the emotional needs of our children. If we want to be in our child's memory tomorrow, we have to be in their lives today. Don't expect your children to remember you in the future if you don't care for them or have concern for them today. Listen to them, pay attention to them. Try to help them overcome their challenges and their difficulties. Don't put any subject aside and say, no, 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 we can't talk about this. No, no, no. That's the worst thing that we can do. We have to make sure that we pay attention to our children, securing their emotional needs. And finally, the third is that we secure the spiritual and the moral needs and rights of our children. The hadith says that every child is born with an innate recognition and desire to connect with God. God has fashioned us, God has designed us naturally to recognize God from birth, from birth. This is an innate capacity. We have an innate capacity, it's called fitrah. The fitrah, the innate capacity is to recognize God and to want to connect with God. And it's important for us to sustain this innate capacity 
in our children. As parents, we are our children's first teachers before they go to school, before they go to the masjid, before they go to Sunday school or Saturday school. Their very first teachers are their parents. And so it's important for us as parents, as the first teachers of our children, to instill in our children a strong foundation of faith. If we want our children to grow up with strong faith so that they're able to overcome all of the challenges that they face, we have to build that foundation when they are young. Slowly but surely. It's our responsibility. Some people say, it's okay, let them. And when they grow up, the sheikh will take care of them. Sunday school will take care of them. That's wrong. Yes, later on. But as the child's parents, you are their very first teachers. And you have to be strategic when it comes to laying the foundations of strong faith. We have two extremes when it comes to this. One extreme is absolute leniency. Some parents, they say, oh, just let my child do whatever they want. Prayers, fasting, hijab. They'll learn eventually, inshallah, they grow up, they become mature, and they will learn all of these things. Let them. Make them, allow them to be absolutely free. This is one side. And the other side is absolutely strict. It imposes upon the child. Prayers is forced. Fasting is forced. Hijab is forced. Forced, 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 forced. We have to be able to take a moderate route. Neither we are too lenient, nor are we too strict. The Quran, when it talks about how we encourage our families to engage in prayer, God says, Instruct your family to perform the prayers. Wastabir. Stabir comes from sabr. Have patience. Have patience. Remind them. Teach them. Guide them. Have patience. Instruct them and have patience. Continue to do that. And this is done through two ways. Number one, first of all, as parents, we have to have knowledge of religion and its foundations. I can't expect to teach my child about religion if I don't have knowledge of religion. doesn't work. We have to work as parents in order to educate ourselves, to inform ourselves, to continue to grow in our intellectual capacities, our understanding of our faith, and the intricacies of our faith. And second is our adherence, not just knowledge, but our adherence. Sometimes you can tell a child something a hundred times, but they won't listen to you. If you do it one time, they're going to learn from your actions. Tell them to pray on time. Tell them to respect others. Tell them to be truthful. But if you're not praying on time, and you're not respecting others, and not, you're not truthful, then it's valueless. They're going to learn from your actions, not just your words. We have to be able to adhere. If I expect my child to be respectful, I have to be respectful. I can't say to my child, be respectful, but when it comes to my neighbors, I'm yelling and I'm cursing at my neighbors, huh? I can't expect my child to observe hijab and be modest, but when it comes to my modesty, huh? I have no understanding of modesty, no appreciation of modesty. doesn't work that way doesn't work that way. Our actions speak louder than our words, dear friends. If I want my children to have a strong foundation of faith and good works, then I have to embody that strong foundation of faith and good works for my children 
to learn and to educate them, to convince them. I know it's difficult. A lot of parents have difficulty. They say, Sayyid, I have a lot of difficulty having my child pray, having my child perform certain actions. It requires patience. Never give up. Never give up. I've seen some cases where parents, they give up on their children. That's the worst mistake that you can make. Never give up. Even if it takes 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Even if it takes 50 years. Don't give up. Educate. Reach out. Have patience. Have tolerance. Convince your children. If I want my child to pray, convince them of the importance of prayer. Don't just tell them God has commanded us to pray. You have to pray. Otherwise, you're going to go to hell. That doesn't work. I have to be convinced of the importance of prayer. What does it mean for me to establish a relationship with God? Why is this important? Why is it important for me to communicate with God and to do so continuously and constantly and conscientiously? We have to convince our children of these things. So these are some of the rights that we are expected to uphold with respect to our children Dear friends, our children are trusts by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's an amana. Amana, a trust. God gives us, blesses us. God doesn't, has not blessed everyone with children and progeny. For some, this is a test. But if God has blessed you with a progeny and the capability to have children, then there is a great and enormous responsibility on your shoulders and we will be held accountable. We will... Before God, we will stand and God will say, what did you do with this gift that I gave you, this trust? Did you fulfill the obligation or did you not? In Karbala, there were many children. The camp of Imam Hussein was not just adults. There were many children and young people on the side of Imam Hussein alayhi salam in Karbala. Many youth who although they were young in age but in their wisdom and in their character they were wise, they were old. They understood what was going on. They understood their responsibilities. They understood their objective and why they were there and who they were fighting against and why they were standing up. They all understood this. From Al-Qasim, who we spoke about, the son of Al-Imam Al-Hassan, to the sons of Sayyidah Zainab salam, to the other children who were involved, to some of the youth, to one of the most beautiful youth and young men who was there, Ali Al-Akbar salam. The tradition says that Ali Al-Akbar, the son of Imam Hussein, he was the one that most resembled in his looks, in his appearance, and in his demeanor. He was the one that most resembled Rasulullah And that when Bani Hashim, they would yearn for the Prophet. They would miss the Prophet. They would turn towards Ali al-Akbar. They would look at Ali al-Akbar. They would listen to his voice. They would watch him walk around because he reminded them completely of Rasulullah. The tradition says that when Imam Hussein and his family, they were on the way to Karbala. They had not yet arrived. They were on the way to Karbala. 
that Imam Hussein was riding on his horse. Ali al-Akbar was riding next to him, behind him, very slowly. The hadith says that at that moment, Imam Hussein alayhi salam, he fell asleep as he's riding. He closed his eyes, he fell asleep, and then after a moment, he opened his eyes and he began to recite, La hawla wa la quwwata illa billahi al-aliyy al-azim, inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. His son Ali al-Akbar, he heard his father. He saw this look of distress on his father's face. He turned to him, he said, Ya abatah, my father, I see that you feel anxious and distressed. Is there something wrong? He turned to him and he told him, My dear son, we are on our way to the inevitable. This journey has no return for us. Ali al-Akbar, he turns to his father. He tells him, My dear father, are we not on the path of truth? Imam Hussain smiled and he said, yes, my son, of course we are on the path of truth. Ali al-Akbar turns to his father. He says, my dear father, then we should not worry whether death comes to us or we go to death. Look at this young man. Look at this young man, his wisdom, his understanding. I'm on the path of truth. I am on the side of God. Nothing else matters for me. This was the foundation. The faith of Ali al-Akbar and how not he is the son of Aba Abdullah al-Hussein. His beautiful son, the one who he raised with his own hands. Ali al-Akbar was the first amongst Bani Hashim to go out. Look at his spirit, the strength of his spirit. He didn't wait for others. He didn't, he didn't wait for wait others. After, after the companions the had been massacred, they had been killed one by one. Ali al-Akbar he goes forward to his father. He tells him, my dear father, Aba Abdullah, I seek permission from you to go out onto the battlefield. Allahu Akbar, how can a father hear these words from his son? Um, Imam Hussein السلام, he embraces Ali al-Akbar, he begins to weep, he tells him, you're my son, Ali al-Akbar, do you know what you're asking? I'm your father, do you know what it is that you are asking of me? You are asking of me permission to let you, to allow you to go out and to die, how can I do so as a father? What kind of heart would I have to do so? Ali al-Akbar, he tells him, my master. My master, Aba Abdullah, my dear father, you know that this is inevitable for all of us. Let me go out and fight. I miss my grandfather, Amirul Mu'mineen. I miss my great-grandfather, Rasulullah. I miss my grandmother, Fatima al-Zahra. Allow me to go out. Imam Hussein, he is reluctant. He is reluctant, he tells him, my dear Ali, okay, but before you go, go to your mother, approach your mother, you know the heart of your mother, she's very much attached to you. Go and bid her farewell. Ali al-Akbar, he goes to his mother to bid her farewell. She is a mother, what is she going to do? What is she going to do? Her beloved Ali al-Akbar, the one who she raised in her arms, the one who she fed, the one who she took care of for many years, he is asking her to go on to the battlefield. 
but this mother, she has strong faith and insight. She allows him to go out. Imam Hussein then places the armor on his son, Ali al-Akbar. He goes out onto the battlefield. This is the grandson of Ali ibn Abi Talib and the son of Imam Hussein. Courage is in his blood. He goes out and he fights valiantly and courageously. He then comes back to the camp. He looks at his father. He tells him, Abba Abdullah, I'm very thirsty. The heat is strong. I'm very tired. I'm very thirsty. If you have any water, give me my dear father. Imam Hussein, he looks at his son. He begins to weep. He tells him, my dear son Ali, go back on to the battlefield and fight with every breath. And I guarantee you that your grandfather Rasulullah, he, he will be waiting. As soon as you go, you meet your grandfather, he will quench your thirst in a way that you will never feel thirsty again. Ali al-Akbar, he's renewed, his courage is renewed. He goes back on to the battlefield. He fights valiantly and courageously. His mother, she is looking at the face of Aba Abdullah from her tent. She's looking at the face of Aba Abdullah. Allahu Akbar. She sees at some moments, Imam Hussein's face lightens up. He sees at that point when Ali is charging forward and he is breaking enemy lines his father is proud suddenly she notices that the complexion of Imam Hussein changes the enemies surround Ali al-Akbar they are cowards they don't fight him one by one they surround him from every direction and they began to strike him with their swords from every direction the tradition says that he becomes bloodied. He falls onto his horse. His horse is no longer capable of seeing the direction that it's going in. It takes him towards the enemy camp in the middle of the enemy. They all attack him from every side. He then calls out to his father. He says, Assalamu alayka abata ya Aba Abdullah. Imam Hussein comes rushing out. He's seeing is the body of his Ali al-Akbar in that state. Inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. Wa sayalamu alladheena zalamu ayyamun qalabin yanqalibun. Wa al-aqibatu lal-muttaqeen. صلى الله وسلم عليك يا سيدي ويا مولاي يا أبا عبد الله صلى الله وسلم عليك وعلى الأرواح التي حلت بفنائك عليكم مني جميعا سلام الله أبدا ما بقيت وبقي الليل والنهار ولا جعله الله آخر العهد مني لزيارتكم السلام على الحسين وعلى علي بن الحسين وعلى أولاد الحسين 
وعلى أصحاب الحسين جميعا ورحمة الله وبركاته وإلى أرواح المؤمنين والمؤمنات نهدي جميعا ثواب سورة الفاتحة مع الصلوات اللهم صل على محمد وعلى محمد وسلم